With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, the shark, baby, has such teeth there. And it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, baby, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites. Well, so welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin, and this is episode six in our Make or Break series, a series where we've been speaking to fighters about fights. Pivotal fights, really, in their careers. Fights that, had they not won them, then their careers could have gone on to be very different. And we've really enjoyed this series so far. It's it's, it's thrown up some really interesting conversations. It was great fun speaking to Nate Campbell last week over in Jacksonville in Florida. And I am aware that every time I've introduced one of these episodes, I've said how much I've been looking forward to it because it's been something I've been wanting to talk about for a while. And I've meant it every time I've said it. Um, it does take the power out of it slightly, I'm aware, but we're very enthusiastic about this. We we, we love doing this. And with that in mind, uh, this, this episode today, when, when Macklin WhatsApped me yesterday and told me that our invited guest was up for it, honestly, I've been in a state of fevered excitement since because unbeknownst to him, uh, the fighter we've got on, the fight that we're going to talk about, which happened in May 2011, to say that I was all over this fight would be a massive understatement because it was then and it still remains now. Some people will think this is going too far, but I stand by it. It still remains now, I think, one of the best fights that has been made in my boxing viewing life because it had everything. It was an all-British fight. It had an intense rivalry, a rivalry going back Years between two fighters who somehow found themselves at the same amateur club, in the same weight division, similar in age, similar as we know from their careers now, in ability. Both went on to become 
super middleweight world champions. I mean, it has so many things, and there was genuine feeling there. There was there was bad blood, and it wasn't for the cameras. Nothing was for the cameras in this one. It was all absolutely genuine. And then on the night, it had an absolutely nail-biting, absorbing fight. And the other thing which I loved about it too is that it's exactly the kind of fight that promoters often would make an excuse for not making and that maybe one team might make an excuse for not taking, saying that, oh, this needs to happen down the line when there's more money and there's world titles on the line and things of that nature. But that isn't what happened. We got to see it on May the 21st at the O2 and you'll know who was involved. It was James DeGale. And the man who came out on the right side of the decision, George Groves, who who joins us now. And, and George, May seems to be a big month for fights because back at the end of May, the, the, there seems to be anniversaries of big fights coming up left, right and, and centre. But I was always really keen to get you on to talk about this one because you get asked about Frotch a lot. Uh, you get asked about Tudanov a lot as well. Um, but this was huge. I mean, it was nearly 10 years ago now, and I was watching the fight back today and watching some of the build-up, had a chat with, with, with Andy Scott, who was around the whole thing, and i just kind of forgotten almost, to be honest, just how, just how big a deal this was. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was definitely a big deal to me at the time, and even now with the bigger fights, technically, that I've been involved in since... Um, in many ways, the the, the, the biggest fight I've I was I, I've ever been in. Um, it's hard. It's hard to imagine like the intensity that that had just become. You know, um, in this situation, in this period of my life, the, the cauldron of pressure that um, we'd ended up in where this, if any fight for me had ever been make or break, um, this was it, you know, this, this was it. This was um, a huge, um, opportunity, yes, but um, task, task that had to be dealt with, you know, this was, um, we, me, me and James were just on a a collision course. um, And as you said earlier, like lots of fighters, um, just wouldn't just, just wouldn't take this fight at this stage like someone even if the fighters wanted it management or promoters or someone would intervene and make sure that um, you could steer clear and, and maybe hope that it will come along and be be an even bigger attraction because the idea was that the, the fighter who loses just won't recover from it won't be able to come back um, but for me it was there, there was never a there was never really an option. There was never really an out. Um, I backed myself entirely to beat him, and I and I was um, dreaming about the the rewards that I would reap after after beating James. But um, you are also cocooned in your own little world, and um, it's hard to take in like what's going on around you, how big this fight can and will be and all the ramifications that go with that. So it wasn't probably until the, the, the you know, in every fight you have monumental um, periods, you know, where maybe the fight's being spoken about and then the fight's been made and then the fight's been announced and then you're in camp and then 
and then you're there. You know, you're, you're, the fight is upon you. <laughs> you have to fight. And then um, and it's life after. Um, for me, um, you know, I, I, uh, I won. Um, and uh, I don't, I, there's never been a, sweet, a, sweet, a sweeter win in terms of um, that rivalry that, that I had with James DeGale, you know. Um, there's only one win on my, on my record that, uh, that, I'm more, that I'm more happy with, and that was winning a world title, but um, for different reasons, probably just because it was a weight off my shoulders and something that I desperately had to do. But likewise with, with, with DeGale, um, an absolute must-win fight, absolute must-win fight. So just take us back to the beginning because the rivalry was intense. You both boxed at Dale Youth. It's kind of an unimaginable script, really, the kind of script that if somebody had, had written it, they would have thought that it was it was too far-fetched. Take us back to the first time George met James. Was yeah, people, so... people talk about love at first sight. It, it, it definitely wasn't love at first sight. Was it loathing at first sight, though, or did that take a no, while no, to, no, no. to get I off mean, the ground? I mean, I was a kid when I joined Dale and, and um, Dale Youth, amateur boxing club that we were both at. Um, DeGale was already there. Um, and, you know, there was lots of talented kids at Dale. There was lots of good good fighters, lots of national champions. Like It was a successful club. It was a winner's, winner's environment. I mean... Um, and I didn't know no different. I mean, now <laughs> I look back and I think, wow, that's, that was just amazing to have been part of that um, back then to install that that winning um, mentality from such an early age. But James was like, he was he was considered talented, but overweight, never took it seriously, never pushed himself, had no real desire. Um, and I was the total opposite of that. You know, I'd be the first in the gym, last out, what, you know, I'd be at the shows just um, even when I'm not boxing, like just love, probably loved the sport more than he did in that respect. Um, I, I was, I was, I was winning. I was, I'd won schoolboy titles um, from the ages of like 11 and onwards. And um, James didn't really win anything until he got to that late teenage, maybe 17. Um, and he started to knuckle down the, um, got himself in the gym, um, got dropped down to middleweight and um, started winning titles. If he won like an NABC title or junior ABAs and then went in the senior ABAs at 18 and won it, um, which back then felt like an amazing achievement because um, barring Amir Khan, like um, you had to be a fully grown adult man to even stand a chance of going in the senior ABAs but um, that, that, that crop of fighters that were just good well-skilled talented fighters were showing that yeah, you know that their, their skill set was outdoing the, the physicality of you know um, the combined services fighters that used to go in there or um, just long-term almost like pro-am um, fighters who had been through the mill they might have been on part of the England set up box around the world tried to have gone to qualifiers before and, and failed. Um, but I always had one eye on James. We'd spar in the gym. Uh, we got on right up until the point where um, I sort of came of age and I, I wanted to go, I was 18, and wanted to go in the ABAs. And 
you that's it. You're from the same club, so you go in in the same northwest of northwest division of London. So we're going to box each other um, in the first round. And one of us is going to go out, and I think it kind of set his teeth on edge. You know, he. Um, I think part of him just thought the audacity of me even being considered wanting to go in there with a guy who by then he had won two ABA titles. He was the number one fighter in the UK. Um, he was boxing all around the world for for uh, for England, and um, he just thought he was a level above me. And I suppose like it had been said in the gym, you know. Um, was George? Is it almost a bit reminiscent of how when you fought Carl Crutch the first time? Because you could feel the disdain from Carl that like, who the fuck do you think you are, thinking you could beat me, you little pop? But it was almost like that, wasn't it? He felt like there was you had an audacity to think you could beat. Him. Was it similar? Yeah, with- yeah no, no, definitely, man. And um, obviously, being like just from that junior to senior, so like just turning eighteen and going, and then still treating like a boy, and I'm like. Well, James did the same thing I'm about to do two years ago and no one batted an eyelid. Um, and we used to spar week in, week out. You know, some weeks I'll be better than him, some weeks he's better than me. But I'm always thinking, well, it's about how, how good can you be? What's the very best version of yourself on, you know, on a particular night when it matters? Um, and i got to admit, I don't think many people think I was going to beat him the first time. Um, and I how couldn't did, understand that. generally go? generally how did the spars go in my opinion I was um, easily give as good as I got and I could I knew him inside out you know he's, he was an awkward southpaw and imagine like if you're trying to get hold of an awkward southpaw over four two minute rounds it can be quite difficult and you know the second that you um, fought a particular way with him he could look sensational and that sort of almost enhanced his reputation and made him appear to be a better fighter than what he was. But he had long, long arms. He was, he was quite um, a good range, good, good balance. And he used to throw winging slappy shots um, as an amateur, much like what he did as a, as a pro. But um, it's like, well, I'm slipping aside and, and ducking underneath that lead left hook and coming in over the top. I'm going to land my right hand. And, um, in amateur boxing back then, I think it was about was point scoring, and um, jabs really never scored a point. Body shots never scored a point. You had to land straight right hands and knock the, knock the guy's head back, or, or lead left hooks that knock, or in the girl's case, lead right hooks and knock your head back. So um, I was, I was, I was up for it. <laughs> I was up for I it. Remember, I remember it clear as day because I remember, um, I remember you. I knew you as a kid because uh, I think I turned pro and. Ron Bodie was obviously someone who I knew from the amateur days and I stayed in touch with, spoke to quite a lot. And he was always banging the drum about you as a schoolboy long before I'd seen you. And then I think he reintroduced us to each other on day of the show and that. But I, I, I turned pro when the AK is 18. I turned pro, but I, and I do remember the guy actually coming down to Crystal Palace once and uh, I sparred with him. But he, like you say, he was called Chunky because he was a fat kid. He was a light heavyweight, I think. Um, I read a few rounds, but... I remember that fight happening, uh, there being a lot of talk, because even though I was a pro at the time, I mean, the amateur one in the ABAs, even though I'd moved on, because I'd, I'd stayed in touch with Ron Bowden, he was going quite well, he was giving me all the backstory about it, and, you know, I, I, was, I was intrigued about the fight, even the first one in the amateurs. Yeah, well, they, they, I mean, Ron, Ron Bowden, um, I'm not sure if it was... Uh 
an official role, but he definitely was, um, he did a lot of media um, for the ABA. And I think he was more of a passion than anything else. He loves his boxing. He's from that, um, he don't live a million miles from, from our amateur gym. He used to have a shop, that, uh, shop you know, a sports shop down right. in Paddington. And he was a lovely guy. He used to come down. Um, if you ever needed stuff, he could sort it out like, oh, well, I need boots. Where can I find boots? This was before eBay and Amazon. Like, leave it to me. I'll get hold of them and stuff like that. Um, and I remember him saying to me, like, you two, this is going to be huge one day. Um, you two are going to make a lot of money out of this. And obviously, with, with, with two hood rats, almost uh, street rats at the bottom of the the Grenfell Tower estate, you know, it's like, you're like, really? You think this might catch on? Who might be interested? And um, it, as you say, even for for an amateur, an amateur bout, which never really gets that much coverage, the Brent Tunnel was packed, it was sold out. Um, you couldn't, you couldn't get in there that night if you didn't have a ticket. And um, bizarre, like it just did, really... Did it, create, did it create a division and a bit of tension within the club? Well, yeah, I think much like many, I'd imagine many amateur boxing clubs, they're a little bit old-fashioned in many ways. And it's sort of like um, my our club had never had two boys fight each other in, in their existence up until a few years prior because it, there was predominantly a junior club. And because there's so many different kids at different ages, different weights, they'd always juggle them so they wouldn't have to fight each other. Um, but now we're all seniors and we're all going to the ABAs. There's only a handful of weight divisions. I think we had five in uh, the world weights that year. We had three in, three went in at, at middle. So I boxed another Dow Youth lad before boxing Degel that night. And um, it was always just going to be whatever, whatever may be, you know, win, lose or draw, shake hands and just get back, get back on your, you know, back to your boxing, back to your club mate sort of thing. Um, well, it didn't work out like that, did it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I mean, he, he, he lost and he, did, and he did not see it coming. Um, and he took it personally. Um, I mean, what what had happened beforehand was that, like, um, the club coaches down there, Mickey, um, Peter and a few others, like, this were like, right, we're going to treat everyone evenly now. So, like, the prior years when Degal was in the ABAs, he might be coming in on different nights and getting like additional pads and that. And then Mick said to me, well, I'm not doing it this time because you're fighting George. Like it, once you get, whoever gets through this round can have the preferential treatment. But up until now, I mean, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, or whenever it was, and these are the nights you come in, you train. Um, and I think he just, 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 fuming, just couldn't, couldn't cope with it. So yeah, there was a divide. We never saw him again because um, he didn't want to leave the club so he started training on the junior nights, which was with a different um, different coach, um, Steve uh, Noonan, who um, had come from Trojan or another amateur club. He knew DeGale. And it was kind of an easy fit because literally after I beat DeGale, the following week he got called up to uh, the GB squad and he was training in Sheffield uh, Monday through Friday every week. So he wasn't really... You still, all you are now is affiliated to an amateur club. Um, so we didn't have to see him. But yeah, I mean, I think everyone, everyone, most people probably wanted me to win. Um, but I don't think a lot of people thought I was going to win. Um, so it was, uh, it was good for me. It was great for me. I was happy. I couldn't have been more happy. Um, 
and but then I had to go on and obviously I had to win it and you couldn't like take your eye off the ball and be like right well I'll beat them beat the champion did you have any tough did anyone push you close in that year I boxed so the I boxed so you get to the um, the next round would have been the semis and finals of the London ABAs which is on the same day um, so I boxed two internationals then I boxed um, Tommy McDonough from um not Croydon. He's from uh, Joshua Buatzi's club um, down there. He was a very good, very good um, junior. South Norwood and Victory. South Norwood and Victory. Is that the club? Might be South. I think it was. It was somewhere around there. It was South. He was from South London. Be him, and then I boxed um, another international, Ryan Pickard from um, Repton, who someone who I knew, um, a strong guy, powerful guy, but um, yeah. Uh, beat him and then it was like wow <laughs> fantastic I mean I was never never more happy Matt because as an as, as a, a kid because I was so big I never really boxed much you know I, I think I won I won four national titles in about 20 fights because I'd get a bye 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 I had eight I had eight fights to win the ABAs that year and I think I had eight again the following year so um I was just happy to get <laughs> to get the action man it was, uh, it was perfect for me so, was it difficult to to watch him win an Olympic gold medal? Fairly blunt question. Did you want him to win one? Uh, well, you know, I mean, um, so to give a bit of, a bit of backstory pre Digal going to Olympics. So now I'm I'm like, well, okay, so I'm number one. No, Digal still number one. Okay, well, can I at least be on the 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 podium team, the A team, as such? We were training. Monday to Friday to, to go to Beijing. Uh, they said no. Um, they already had another middleweight, which was a Scottish lad who won a bronze medal at the Europeans. So um, there was no room for me. So I'm like, okay, great. I've just just won the nationals and I'm, I'm, I'm on the development team. You see me every other week. 2012 is, is your, your target. And obviously at this point, in 2000, end of 2006, 2007, or something, it was... Maybe later now, 2008. It was it was a it was a long way off. Did you, did um, you ever think, George? Sorry, sorry, George. Did you ever think about staying on for London Olympics? Was that ever an No, idea? no, no. I mean, I had so my little click, Matt, would have been from the start. It was me, Luke Campbell, Anthony Ogogo, and a few others that sort of um, went on. And then come 2008. Um, I remember telling the lads at the start of the year, I'm like, um, once I realised I wasn't going to go to any of the qualifying tournaments, I said, I'm going pro. Um, they're like, really? I said, yeah, that's me. I'm done. I've had enough. Um, because I always wanted to be a professional world champion, you know, and it might sound convenient now, but for me, winning an Olympic medal was always just to enhance my professional career. Like, that was what it was always ever going to be about. And, um, you know, you, 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 I've been away. I've been tucked up. I, you know, I'd had bad decisions on the road, boxing for England, and like there was never any national pride as such when I was there. You know, you only you only really get that national pride when you're fighting at the Olympics. So I didn't even have that sort of anger of the positive towards. Um, but yeah, I moved on. Um, Campbell stayed on, and Agogo stayed on. They both medalled in London. Campbell won gold. Um, uh, Agogo won bronze. Um, and if I look at what 
by the time that was 2012, I'd already beat James DeGaul. I think that at the end of that year, I was boxing Glenn Johnson, a former world champion, and within a year's time, I'm, I'm fighting for a world title. And it's like where where we were in our careers, like I I was I felt like I definitely hundred made the the right choice. Um, Agogo spent another four years in the system in the amateur setup where in my opinion um they're not treated properly they're um they're overworked overtrained uh, they have to overcompete they have to, the, the the medical staff there are not good enough um you know they, because you're all part of, of of a team like you go to the local physio or whatnot you know there there was no real specialist there like maybe there are for certain olympians when they get to a certain stage but when you're just all pulled in that's it and agogo had some horrific injuries as an amateur turned professional and his professional career never got going because his body couldn't cope um luke campbell won a gold medal and um very likable guy personal guy um, entertaining guy um but being a division he's in and he's competing with the first female Olympic champion. So he's got to try and take some of her um, limelight and then dealing with Andy Joshua, a super heavyweight Olympic champion from London in London, who's then just been the poster boy of Sky Boxing since. Like um, Luke Campbell now, through lockdown, he probably one of the most boxers I'm worried about most, who he's got no time to waste, um, still hasn't managed to win a world title He's 32 years old, 33 at the end of the year. And um, I'm happy for him. He obviously won his gold medal. But for me, personally, I'm just so grateful that um, I didn't roll the dice and hope to win hope to win a medal in, in London, that um, staying, um, that turning professional and, and giving that a real good run. Definitely for me, it was the right decision. So in terms of him winning that, that gold medal, though, I mean, what... what... We got slightly off track. What was it like for you to watch him do that? Yeah, so um, I'd already turned professional, but I hadn't had my first fight. I'd already signed with um, Haymaker Boxing. They had an output deal with Satama Sport. Um, and I was just really, really excited to be working um, along, training alongside David Hay, um, um, working and, and being trained by Adam Booth, who... Um, made a great, great impression on me. I thought um, he was a very good coach, was going to bring me on, and it was exciting times. And um, I remember in, in the Olympics, um, Degal got, I think that he got a good draw at the start, as in his first fight, maybe in his first two fights, he, he boxed um, nations that you wouldn't really worry about, New, New Zealand or something like that. And then um, he faced... Um, the first person he faced was someone who had already beaten him, um, Kazakhstani kid, and he didn't show up. Digal beat him. I was like, well done. He's got a medal. He's got a bronze medal now. And then he boxed Darren Sutherland, who I think they boxed five times, and Sutherland had beaten four times. I was like, oh, well, that's as far as Digal's getting. And Sutherland had a bad day at the office, and he got through. He's, like, he's got a silver medal. And then I think he boxed a Cuban in the final who had beat him again uh, in Manchester or somewhere before. And Degal just rose to the occasion and, and won his gold. Um, and people just said to me, "Don't worry, man. Like now you've got 
you beat a future Olympic champion on your on your resume, and when you do fight again, it's just going to be that much more bigger. Um, so, you know, which it was. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was. I mean, don't get me wrong, Matt. I mean, sometimes, not so much now. I'm a bit older, but you will cut your nose to spite your face if that is the right saying. You know, would I be? Would I be just as happy with nothing if DeGaulle's got nothing as well? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. On certain days, I'd rather we just all go down in a blaze of glory, you know? Um, but um, it, was, it was a motivation. It was just a motivation. It was like, right, I'm not going to let this guy finish in front of me. Like, whatever. He became my, uh, my measuring stick, like something that I wanted to... Um, just someone who I constantly had to be, like had to, had to get further and had to, and our, and our, and our careers did um, go on different paths and at times they were going to cross and once they did cross, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the Olympic, I was disappointed, but I don't think I was depressed or anything like that. I, I was just more like guy, but there was obviously that silver lining on the side that was a, a, a carrot, you know, that it's like, right, well, you've beat this guy and it's only going to make you more money and more accolades and, you know, more exposure in the future. And so then on to the, the, the fight it's itself in the pros. So he was 10 and 0 and he'd won the British title against Paul Smith. Good performance stoppage in the ninth round. You were Commonwealth champion. You'd beaten Kenny Anderson uh, and you were 12 and 0 uh, as described. You were with, Haymaker, you were being trained by Adam Booth. You were part of that camp. He'd joined up with Jim McDonnell and signed with with Frank Warren. And it had been in the works for a little while, hadn't it? You'd been you'd been saying each other's names as professionals, and it just always seemed to be something that you both wanted and wanted sooner rather than later. It was like you both couldn't wait for it. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health. Thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital podcast coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go. This is so crazy. Yeah, well, I won the Commonwealth in the ninth fight, and um, I try. I think Paul, yeah, Paul Smith was still the champion at the time, and I and I sort of set upon him. Like I was like, right, let me try. I want to win this British title before James DeGale does, and he won't want to fight me. So that'll force him into a new route and um, it will just be a, a one-up. It's an hour, <laughs> done you again. So um, I put real pressure on on um, trying to fight for the, the British title, not knowing an awful lot about the business at the time then, still learning. And um, obviously um, the British title was actually being promoted with Haymaker. Um, because they had um, Tony Quigg, his name was against Tony Dodson, 
Um, it was a big Liverpool rivalry. And then um, the, I think Dodson came through with that and then he boxed um, Smith and lost. And then basically the belt went to Warren. So I didn't have a chance of fighting for it on a voluntary and that. But I made up such a fuss that I managed to get myself into like a mandatory position if I wanted it. And then I just remember De Gaulle then won. Um, he was champion. And do I want this mandatory position? It's like, yes, I'm not going to. I'm going to give up this mandatory now and then him think that I don't want this fight. So the mandatory gets put in and it's just a bit of a whirlwind. And I think a lot of the people around the scenes, um, Warren and um, Adam Booth and Dave Colwell and a few others who was part of um, the Haymaker setup, were unsure about what exactly to do. Um, but I, I like to think that it was my... Um, so, like my confidence, my my, um, my belief that convinced them that nah, this is the right fight for me now. Let's take it. You know, there's so much more to be achieved with this. Um, so he went through. There was a bit of back and forth with purse bids and that. And I think they've even changed the rules on purse bids now because there's a few dodgy purse bids floating around. Um, but we managed to do a, to do a deal, straight up deal, and we was going to be boxing at the O2 Arena. And um, it was uh, it was on the undercard of a Nathan Cleverly world title fight um, that sort of fell through and fell through. There's a few different changes. So we ended up being elevated to main event, which at the time being so like focused on the fight, I didn't really appreciate until after. But to headline, you know, a pay-per-view fight that sold an awful lot of tickets at the O2 Arena back in, in an era when... There was only two fighters out there that were selling tickets like that. Um, was was amazing. So when it came to the to the build up to the fight, as you said, it was initially on the undercard of Nathan Cleverly against Jurgen Bremer was what it was supposed to be. But it was it seemed fairly obvious from a, quite an early stage that somehow that Bremer probably wasn't going to end up in that fight and. And so, as you say, that the imagination was captured purely by by your fight, this fight between yourself and, and the Gale. There were, there were quite a few press conferences, and, and it was always the two of you that that kind of stole the show. I mean, were you were you in any way ready for just what a kind of circus, if you like, it ended up being in the best possible way. I use that. I use that word. I, I love a good circus when it comes to a build up to a fight. But were you ready for it? Because it was. I mean, from the outside looking in, you look at the ringside as well. You went straight from a press conference to that to that infamous um, set two on ringside. It looked really intense. Yeah, no. I mean, I was ready. So, in terms of what you would want in prep for and like that sort of build up. Um, I was in there with a guy who I knew, who I knew intimately. I knew him um, on a personal level. So there was no fear from me in that respect. I knew his characteristics. I knew his behavior. I knew likely his reaction to certain things. Um, I knew his temperament. Um, so there was all comfort in there. And I knew I had the upper hand in those um, situations. And I've been around plenty of actual circus behavior being part of the haymaker um, camp watching david hay perform for you know um three 
yeah, get. I mean, it would have been three big fights before then because you'd had the value of one where he's he's punching heads off of um, you know seven foot mascots and um, Audley Harrison, which was bizarre, and then um, he's built up for Klitschko, which was a couple of months or a month or so after he boxed into Gale. So um, I'd seen someone firsthand deal with the pressure of cameras you know and, and questions um and uh he he um hey seemed to be able to find a, a next gear on it and um find a comfort zone in there where he sort of reveled in it and um it's just it's just knowing like when you see someone do something it's just it's not knowing if you can do it it's more just knowing that it can be done and um I felt like um, I came into my own. That's probably when it was it was the most comfortable. It was the easiest part of camp was um, the circus because drilling, doing the, the drills and the technique and the sessions in the gym was the graft, you know, because that required concentration, concentration levels that I'd never had to put in before, you know, um, when someone wants you to, to fight. To a particular game plan um, that you've now decided to get on board with, and um, you've got to execute it 100%. There's no room for any mistakes um, because you're talking about winning. You're talking about landing only a handful of shots per round, so you can't switch off and then get hit with a flurry because you might end up losing that round. So um, every part of camp required that level of concentration, and it was a fantastic thing for me to. Um, attained because I could use it time and time again throughout my career in times of it when I definitely needed it again. Um, but it was um, it was fun. Like it was so much fun. The build up was so much fun. You'd, back then I never really had a, a clue on how people were gonna um, receive it and then what my you know what the feeling towards me was gonna be. But you know, press conferences um, you know I want it to be a bit different. You know, I'm going to be argumentative. I'm going to be. Um, I'm going to try and get the guy agitated. Um, no one else was doing that. You know, not not to not really to that level. You know, um, so. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. What was interesting as well about the about the build-up was that you were, to, from the outside looking in, you were just more reasonable than he was. I mean, you look at the ringside encounter that you had. You were confident and you were more than happy to say that you were going to beat him again. But he, there was a level of childishness and kind of petulance to the way that he was going about it. You know, you know calling you ugly and ginger and you know, holding his nose at one point saying you had bad breath. I think people didn't, they didn't like that. They didn't appreciate that. And and when it came to the night itself, 
uh, and the ring walks. And I'd forgotten this before I watched it back earlier today, but he got booed. Uh, and he'd been booed on his professional debut, but he got booed. And, and you were the one cheered into the ring. And the boxing public seemed to want you to win. So you have that, but then on the other hand, the trade seemed to all think you would lose because Boxing Monthly did a poll and 29 people went for De Gale and two went for you. I mean, it's it's a funny thing to be on the inside of that. It, it would be for me anyway. I can't really imagine it, you know, that level of scrutiny where people who you would maybe think aren't as informed want you to win and people who are supposed to know what they're talking about all think you're going to lose. Yeah, um... I took some advice from Adam Booth, um, whether he believes it or not. Every now and again, he said he said some things that actually I I, I thought about a little bit. I'll, I'll try and give that a go. But he um, take the good and the bad um, criticism, um, opinions, whatever it may be, the good and the bad, and just bury it. Like forget it. Don't absorb it. Don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Um, because boxing itself is, is such an opinion sport. It's, it's an opinionated sport. It's, it's how it works. Like it's how it thrives is on people's opinion. And sometimes there's people you look into and you want um, more of a, an expert opinion. And they don't know. <laughs> they don't know. And it's not that they don't know boxing. It's just that they're not, they're not looking hard enough. Like who, who could call that fight better than I can? Like, because I'm the one who's sparred him, done a thousand rounds with him in Dale Youth. I'm the one who's boxed him as an amateur. I'm the one who's been watching his tapes. I'm the one who knows exactly what I can do, you know. Two best people to call that fight would probably be me and, me and DeGale. But DeGale, I don't think his brain works that way. Not everyone's does. So, you know, 29 out of 31, I'm thinking, this is bizarre. This is bizarre. Like... My, my worry is always when there's such a feeling that something's going to happen that it's just, it just um, manipulates people's opinion on, on what happens. And then because uh, the game plan was to win each round, not necessarily particularly convincing. Like, you know, you, when you're fighting off the back foot, you're making a miss. He can't punch going forward. He needs to stand. He needs you to stand still to hit you. If you land one shot and he lands none, you win that round. Like, and that was that was hard for me to take. That was hard for me to um, quantum. But I went with it. But I knew that like, if I if I if I, if he lands two shots around, I land five. Is that enough? If the commentators are not picking it up there and then, or you know, if if he's got a big crowd at ringside because he's the home fighter and they're all shouting, are they going to sway the judges? You know, um, those are things like that. But um, really sweet moment, obviously, um, afterwards, winning a t- tight, close split decision. Um, now, if you go out, everyone's got a camera phone and everyone's filming everything. But back then, it probably wasn't that cool. It didn't occur to people. So there was, there was only a couple, but it was a couple of road people who had filmed um, the decision and um, and then put it up on YouTube for you to find and um, it, the whole place went ballistic when I won I couldn't believe it these people that I don't know but had bought into the story fortunately for me it sided with me and um, were just 
happy I'd won. Underdog had won. Uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't been given a chance, even though I told everyone I'm here and I'm in business. But I hadn't been given a chance by anyone. And I showed, showed everyone up and proved everyone wrong. So as the days were counting down to the fight, did you, I mean, how much kind of thought did you put into what you were going to do at press conferences, what you were going to do when you got the opportunity to see him? Because when you, when you box Frotch, for example, it seemed obvious the first time around, particularly that you put a lot of thought into it and he wasn't really ready for it. Uh, and with James, it was someone you knew so so well do you think you paid more attention to that side of it than he did or did he maybe listen to those 29 out of 31 people and think yeah they're right I am going to beat him yeah I mean maybe maybe both maybe maybe he didn't put much thought into it and maybe he just did buy into the hype um, but I think about um, how I want to be perceived because um, I had to win everything in this fight, and that means I have to win the build-up, I have to win the weigh-in, I have to win the fight, I have to win this, I have to sway people's opinions, I have to, um, even strangers in the street, you know, I want to convert them to a George Gross fan, you know, like, um, there was periods where I felt like I was talking my own team into it, like, trying to bring Adam back, you know, and... Um, that's not ideal for any fighter where he feels like I'm not even sure my trainer's backing me in this um, I'm sure he'll swear to the contrary but um, we had those conversations that's how uh, uh, that, that's how I felt he felt um, but it just made me um, more resolute about the decision you know, about how how how, how I'm going to do this and what it's going to feel like after so if you if you imagine uh, a press conference, and I want to win this press conference. So, well, how do I want to portray myself? You know, I know he's going to show up in a tracksuit, probably not in a team tracksuit. Then he's probably just going to be a designer tracksuit, but looks kind of scruffy because that was his fashion. Oh, so I'm going to wear a suit. You know, I'm going to wear. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to give myself a new suit, new shirt, a Larry tie. Hopefully, he brings it up. You know, peacock effect as well for myself back then. You know, I'm trying to make, trying to stand out. You know, try and do something a little bit different. Everything had to be quick, you know. So it was, it was quick, you know. Um, I didn't want to give him any thinking time. So when he was going to fight, he's not going to get any thinking time in the ring because he, I felt like he was a sort of fighter who likes to switch off, go straight onto autopilot, and just go through the motions. But his through the motions is probably better than anyone else's. The second you get him to think, his brain don't engage with his body quick enough. And he starts making mistakes. And it'd be the same, right, well, let's test that out in a press conference. So second he says something that don't make sense or he's contradicting himself or, you know, he's um, he's stumbling or mumbling, then I'll go, oh, hold on, say that again. Where are we at? What's this? And then I start digging a little bit, start pulling some stuff apart. Um, and for him, he would just keep, he would just dig himself a bigger hole, a bigger hole, a bigger hole. Um, so it wasn't particularly too hard because... You're just there and you're like, right, well, if I say this, he's going to say that. And then after that, I hit him with this, this, and this. And we just get to a point where he can't talk anymore. Um, and then you've won that You've won that fight. You know, you've won that fight. I never came away from any of them um, face-to-faces in the build-up to the Gelf. I think it just beat me there. 
maybe one one instance where um, I felt I snookered myself and um, I didn't think quick enough and um, I gave in and gave him a win and that was um, at the last press conference I think he, him or his trainer jumped up and said right I'll bet you my purse on yours and um, I, I, I didn't want to say no and show weakness. I didn't want to say yes and conform with him. I couldn't think quick enough. So I just went, yeah, stood up, shook hands with him. And um, I just remember thinking, ah, he's just got me to do something that he wanted me to do. And that was a loss. Um, that was disappointing to me. To him, maybe they, maybe, that didn't, maybe it didn't occur to him at all. Maybe he's not wired that way. Maybe his brain's not thinking the same. But for me, I was like... I should have nullified his answer and put him back in his place with something, whatever it would have been, whether I said, mate, I'm not betting you, I'll get four and after one the bookies like next week, like uh, I don't I don't need to take you, I don't you keep your money or whatever it could have been. I should have come back quicker. Um, maybe that was one that I wasn't expecting to have and I desperately didn't want to show any weakness in the you know, fight being press conference. I think Tony Bell had showed up like ten minutes before um, ran in and raving because he was well, 11 kilos over for Nathan Cleverly fight, it weren't going to happen. And you know, Frank Warren sitting there grinning. Um, you know, I am at the, uh, the tail end of a hard camp, so uh, that was the only thing, the only thing that I was disappointed with in the build up for the Nagale fight. Um, other than that, uh, I won everything else. <laughs> Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. Was there ever a time when you're kind of waiting to go on stage for a press conference or you're waiting to go on set at Sky where you just found, the two of you just found yourselves close to each other proximity-wise and there was any kind of conversation? No, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, it's, at best, you get that awkwardness where I'm going to go into a room and he's already in there, so I'm not going in there. You know, I wait outside, or you know, um, it was always relatively professional. I feel in that respect, you know, that there was never too much. We was never going to. Maybe we would have actually, I was gonna say we're never we're never gonna start scuffing our back, but years later, like maybe maybe we we nearly did. But um back then it was no, there was no there was no face to face awkwardness, you know. And I think he was far more awkward than I was. Like, um, I had to win over him, I I always had that that presence or I tried to portray that presence of like 
you don't bother me in the slightest. And he was the one who always seemed bothered, so I feel like he was always the one who was trying to avoid me. Um, I didn't, and you'd anticipate when there might be some comings together. Um, again, I was signed with Haymaker. I wasn't a, I wasn't necessarily even a Sky Fighter then. I was doing the rounds, so I wasn't at many shows. I didn't have many boxing friends on the circuit, so there was never really that many um, opportunities for us to bump into each other outside of having to be together. You know. So when it came to the night, uh, Matt, what what did you? expect because both fighters had predicted I think fourth round stoppage wins I, I never really tend to pay much attention to be honest to what to what fighters say they're going to do because it's a, it's an easy way to bluff or double bluff and get somebody thinking about a fight going a, a a certain way we were talking to Johnny the other week weren't we Johnny Nelson and and his prediction of a fifth round stoppage against Carl Thompson now that happened but the reason that Dominic Inga wanted him to do it was because your opponent will be waiting for that and probably make it a little bit easier than it might have been ordinarily to win those first four rounds. So, you know, I always take all of that with a bit of a, a pinch of salt. But what did you think was going to happen on the night? What sort of fight? Did, did it play out anything like you thought it would? Yeah, it did really. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say I would play that exactly how I thought in terms of tactics. And I don't know. I didn't really overthink that. George was going to go on the back foot and outbox him and part shot him the way he did. But I knew I knew they were very well matched. I knew they knew each other really well. They'd sparred umpteen rounds. And when you know someone, you know the moves they're making. It, it, it can be awkward sometimes because you, you know what the other one's going to do. And So I knew it'd be a tight, it'd be close, you know, it'd be tight. They'd be trying to outwit each other, trying to outsmart each other. Um, it, it was going to be a cagey affair. I thought, you know, I didn't buy into any of the fourth round stoppages or anything like that well that was a load that was just all talk but they're both going to be whatever they say about each other they're going to be respectful of each other's ability and they're going to you know this is going to be a cagey affair early on might catch fire later on or maybe you know the girl uh, Rose carries big power with the right hand maybe he, he lands the right hand against the south board the girl coming in but I thought it was going to be a close fight um, ironically going in going in Look, going in, bouncing into that fight, I think the Gale was coming off the uh, win over Paul Smith, where he you know, looked a million dollars. Um, and George had had the fight with Kenny Anderson, which he got up from. Um, you know, he was down, but he got up. And I actually, actually, quickly going on to that one, that night was also the night of uh, Audley Harrison, David Hay, and Manny Pacquiao, Antonio Margarita. And I remember, I, I remember at the weigh-in, when you fought Kenny Anderson, kind of, you had this bowler hat on and you kind of stood in front of him and he snapped your hat off, stuck your, his head on you. And I, and I knew Kenny Anderson, he's a bit of a head case of thought, fucking hell, he's fired up his. And I remember thinking, you looked like you were, you were kind of looking past him. That, that was what the demeanour seemed from the distance. And uh, me, me and Shane, was my brother, we were, I was living in Manchester at the time, so we went to the bookies on the day of the fight. And, uh, you know, I picked Manny Pacquiao to beat Margarito on point and I picked David A to stop Audley Harrison and then we were doing an accumulator and you Kenny and you were a big favourite on Kenny Anderson and I thought you know what Kenny Anderson he's, he's a big fucker he can punch a little bit Groves might be looking past him might just catch him you know I was betting more for the odds you know what I mean I got 20 to 1 and I put 100 quid on it and obviously Margarito uh, Manny Pacquiao beat Margarito on point David A stopped um, 
what's his name, uh, Audley Harrison. Uh, but you got up off the, the deck. Got off the floor, didn't I? He <laughs> cost me a couple of grand. <laughs> oh, but, but yeah, going into that fight, I remember thinking, you got put down by Kenny Anderson, but you also got up and won. And that, that means something. And I thought, I remember thinking, this is going to be a tough fight, this is the guy I want to fight. I, I, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know what I think is going to happen. I wasn't, I kept changing my mind. So as it was going through the rounds, it was it was nip and tuck. I I, I watched it earlier today and and uh, and I scored it earlier today. And it's it's never ideal doing that after the after the event. And I, I I had it a draw at the end, and I don't give draw rounds, so I had it six rounds apiece, and I had differing round scores to the ones that that Jim Watt had because it was a Sky coverage that that I was watching. I mean, you were you seemed calm all the way through. You seemed calm in the corner. What were you thinking, though, going through a fight like that? One thing I've always thought that I would be thinking constantly if, if, if I'd ever done what you two did, would I be just be wondering if I was winning all the time, particularly in a fight like that? Did you think you were winning? Yeah, no, I, I genuinely did think I was winning. Um, um, you got a great start, didn't you, George? You were definitely yeah. ahead on the cards early. I mean, not, yeah, I think, I think no, like, no, one really, no one really predicted me to be boxing, obviously, on the back foot. Degal couldn't get to grips with that, and there had to be a sort of a, a shit to the fan onslaught from him later on. Um, he had to pick up his activity. Um, he punches well in, in bunches, especially if you're on you're on a counter sort of back foot um, in and out sort of strategy. So um, there's loads of times it was it was um, all flocks eat southpaw. It was a bit crude and messy at times. You know, I had three substantial cuts through that fight and he had two all from clash of heads um so i had a still got the harry potter scar on the top of my head there i had a cut over each eye him the same thing he had one under the cheek one maybe over the nose or something we, we, we both looked a mess by the end of it um he was stepping on my toe and like you know and put you pull him back and the guy stepping on your front foot and you're stumbling back i mean it's, it's probably kind of one of the highlights that always gets shown because it looks like I'm off balance and he's, he's jumping on me. Um, but I was, because we, because this was what I was drilling the entire time throughout camp was to just keep it long, straight shots, um, head and body over the top and then cut out at angles, cut out at angles every time. Um, we would have like, it's hard for sparring partners to sustain that, that sustain that pressure. So I'd have, three sometimes even more sparring partners in um to uh, you good sparring you went over to miami didn't you you sparred with andre durell a lot went to miami sparred both the durell brothers out there um anthony durell was probably the best bit of sparring you could have got back then because um he was still fresh you know he was um i think he'd lost to a he'd beaten abraham on the disqualification but was back from a bit of a layoff because he had a, an injury in that fight but um, you learn a lot, you know, like Miami is, um, I mean, I'm sure you know better than me, Matt, in, in the States. It's the psychological element that comes in with these guys, you know. Uh, we'd make arrangements with Durrell for sparring and say, yeah, I'll be here at 10 o'clock. So I get there at 10, hit you up at 1 o'clock. <laughs> like, it's, it's, we're on 5th Street. It's like 110 degrees outside, you know. I've been sitting in the gym for three hours waiting for it. He shows up takes ages to get ready 
then he starts sparring and he's just killing the clock. You know, he's like, he's moaning about this, move that, touch this, tape that, turn the clock off, do this, do that. So, and I'm preparing for the fight of my life. And I was like, mate, just fucking show up on time and do your fucking job, you know. Um, but, you know, you, you've got to learn to control your, your emotions, um, to not engage in the Is it set the door? And Easier yeah, said the top, man. It, 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 for me, it was perfect practice, you know. Um, great sparring out there, and the brother as well. Um, had a few other guys that would come in and out, southpaws, big guys, heavyweights. Um, you know, they're hungry fighters in the States. They ain't really got much. You know, some of them are really good, but they ain't got hot to piss in. So you bring them in. You could even have a have a sort of an exhibition fight if you really wanted one. You say, right, we're going to do six rounds today. I'll give you a couple hundred dollars, and they'll fight their guts out for it because probably more than they get for a profile, you know, out in, in a desert, you know, a couple hundred miles from South Beach. So um, that was great. When I got back, I had a couple of, again, I had a couple of South boys in. Um, Ryan Aston was one. I don't know if he'd turn pro then or he'd turn in pro. Um, Chris Eubank Jr., I had him in a lot for that camp. Although he's not a South boy, he just gave us that, that, that work rate. I mean, he's a fantastic sparring partner, especially back then before he made it when he was still on the up. You know, he was, um, he was great work. He used to show up. We'd put him in the hotel. We'd feed him. We'd give him a bit of money in the week. He'd show up and um, work his nuts off in the gym for us. So, um, no, it was um, a good camp. You can say that, like, as good as good as a camp really could be in terms of there's always niggles and injuries that you got part with. There's always a few bust ups, a few you know, a few tempers thrown in that. Um, but come come fight night, you know, um, I felt prepared. You know, there was no stone unturned. Um, I was ready, ready, ready for action. And heading into those final couple of rounds. We didn't catch on microphone Adam Booth talking too much about where he felt the fight was score-wise. But Jim McDonnell was quite clear with the gale before the start of the 11th and before the start of the 12th. This is a really close fight. You need to go out and win these rounds. So when it got to the end of the fight, you've got that nervous weight uh, that is always there for, for any fighter in a close contest. What were you... You looked pretty calm, to be honest. What were you thinking at that point? Yeah, I, I thought I'd won. So before the bell, before before the the cards get announced, I'm like, don't forget at this point, Andy. I'm like, no one's believed anything I've said up until this point. So maybe they won't even believe that I've won this fight <laughs> right about now. Um, but I've won this fight. I've done exactly what I've, what I've said I'm going to go out and do. Um, the first card comes out and it's close. It's like a point in it or something. Um, and say that goes, I can't remember if it goes to me or I think that goes to me. So I'm like, right, it's a split decision. The next one goes to to, to James and I realise, great, someone's won. This is a, 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 you know, a split decision. Um, and I just know, I just know. Like, it would, it just, I, I didn't want to over-celebrate because I didn't want anyone to think that I was shocked because I wasn't. And I always do a jump and it like try and control myself. And then um, Dave Cole, I think, jumps in. Uh, Ruben Tabarez, who's working with Hay, part of our camp, was in. 
Kay was happy, that booth was there, it was all celebrating. Um, but I remember, just remember knowing, just knowing. Um, but it is obviously relief as well, because you are the away fighter on, a, you know, against the, you know, the A side. Someone who being described as the next Floyd Mayweather and um, they've had a lot of money invested in him and um, they probably didn't want him to lose at that point. But um, I think it was a, it was a, is it one of your best moments, George? Looking back, is it one of your best moments? You know, you've had some great moments. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, best, best, yeah. For what it was, best moment, like, best, Best, best moment. As I say, beating Chudinov, I can't really, nothing will ever compare to that for because there's so many reasons involved in it. But, my God, when I talk to people, you know, it depends on who they are. So, you know, if I'm, talk, if I'm giving someone a talk or, or, you know, a group of people or a company or whatever, I'm giving them a talk, there's two, there's two strategies. There's, there's two instances that I've been through. One where, you know, it's how did I become a champion? How to become a champion? It took me four attempts to win a world title, you know, and I was never, um, you know, it wasn't like I was handpicked to get beat any of these. I thought I was, I thought I was the favourite in every one, and I came pretty close in all of them. Um, so that's tough. But the other part of what I explain to people is how to beat your rival, like how to beat your nemesis. Like, do you know what nemesis means? This is, this is it. Like, we are, um, even by a, what may be a finite margin, you know, a split decision in boxing, um, just is night and day, it's, you know, a lifetime away from what it would have been like losing. It is what you, it couldn't have been a bigger make or break fight for me. I mean, obviously, you both look. Cream always rises to the top, and I think inevitably you were both destined to one of the world champions, which you did. Like you say, even though it took you those few times, you you, you, had, you had tough fights, Carl fights twice, obviously. But though Jack, you know, you could have got that one out in Las Vegas, you know, and then you got it the, first, the fourth time and you tuned up. So the cream did rise to the top. Um, was there? Did you ever think? As you were kind of moving forward, and he became world champion. Did you think you were going to fight again for a world title? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were real close. I mean, we was close to making that fight again. Um, before I boxed Tudinov, even um, I was in Vegas. I was um, trained in Vegas. Cole Frampton was fighting um, his rematch against um, I Santa Cruz. He was the fight he lost. He lost his world title. Um, Santa Cruz. Yeah, we was, all, we, was, we, was all out, we was all out there for that. And, um, and <laughs> I hadn't really been with Shane that long then. Um, and I'm on the phone. He must have known what was going on. So I just keep sneaking off on the phone, um, trying to put together a, a DeGale deal. Because um, I'm mandatory for a world title. He is a world champion. He's got a mandatory that he don't want. You know, this fight is, it could almost be like a now or never. Um, but... There's massive egos involved. Just both our egos just go to the next stratosphere when we'll negotiate with each other. So it's like, I'm not a champion 
you're a champion, I might take 50-50. They're like, what? No, come on with, you know, um, I'm saying the second that you have to vacate and I'm champion, this is a this is a 70-30 max. I said, I'm doing you a solid. I said, no one knows who you are, James. Like, you, you've disappeared. You're boxing the States now. People despise you. They hate you. Like, you couldn't be more hated. Um, you know, uh, and then obviously... Who, who were you chatting to when you were doing when this? Who were you speaking to when this was happening in negotiations? So I never... I spoke with James once, and I said, "Look, we do we we can do, maybe once or twice when when it was it was coming about." And um, I think on the phone it was like I said, "Look, you you champion just to make this over the line, like we're fighting for a title. It's like fifty five forty five. You know, I'll give you the lion's share. You've got that, mate. You, know, you can have that. That's yours." And then he come home and he just spoke to his mum or whoever, I think his mum's his manager. So. You can't have people working for you in that respect who are emotionally involved, you know, who have a, um, <laughs> they come back and he was like, no, nah, don't talk to James no more. James is not now doing talking anymore. Um, it's now 8, 20 or something like that, mate. Right, so, that's dead now. That's finished. That's gone. Because, um, if you feel he caused himself out of the fight a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe we, Maybe that would always have been the case. We're both going to price each other out and fight. Um, the only way that that probably would have, both of us would have swallowed it and been unhappy would have been 50-50 if we both had world titles. But even then, I create, in my opinion, I would be creating so much more of the value than he would. I'm the one who's had to rebuild um, in, the, in the public eye, in the UK. I'm the one who created history with Wembley Stadium and the rest of it. I'm the one who brings the value to this fight. But that's not how the world, you know, this fight, me versus someone else don't make the same money, but me versus James Degal makes mega, mega money. And the same with James. So you have to, you have to sort of, you have to swallow that yeah. bit more sometimes. But Yeah, the, the George Gross, James Degal story needs each other doesn't it you know what i mean you're both as important yeah. part of that piece you know and that and that is boxing that is boxing in that because like you can be the best fighter in the world but if you've got no one to fight who cares like who cares like for me the best fighter in the world now is probably canelo you know he's just gone up to light heavyweight and won a world title but it seems like he's got no one to fight no one really cares you know he's got linked to a couple of british fighters but there's no pandemonium about it out there, you know. It'd be more if Mayweather came back at Weltway, it'd probably would be people more excited about that fight than anything else. So you, you need, need the dance partners, don't you? You need the dance partners. You do, you do. Someone like Chris Eubank Jr. who um never won a, a full world title, won an IBO world title, um, but probably would be more alluring to a Canelo than um, a Billy Joe Saunders or a um, Cam Smith, because he can just create um, the publicity. He can just create the excitement, the exposure, you know, the the build up to a fight that you need. And who knows exactly why, but he just manages to do that. He just has that talent. Um, his um, his profile outweighs his ability. Um, and then on the contrary, there's loads of fighters out there with tremendous ability who. You just, you just struggle to get behind. So um, it's a bizarre sport like that, but I feel all sports like that. Um, probably no, none more so than boxing. 
But um, getting back to me and Degal, that's definitely why uh, <laughs> we probably would never have got done on the split. You needed someone to come in and roll the dice. Someone would have to have come in and gone, right, this is how much you're getting, this is how much you're getting, and I'm hoping to make a bit, bit more on top of myself. And I think um, in this day and age, with, with the way the way that um, promoting done, that could have been easily done because you can work out exactly what the ticket demand is now before tickets go on sale. And off the back of that, you'll know you, the TV networks know exactly what um, the buyers are going to be. Um, your smartphone's listening to you right now. It's listening to you talking about buying the fight, and then it will it will tell. Uh, they tell the, the bosses of this world whether they're going to buy it or not, and then they can make an educated guess. Who knows? Well, I think most fight fans would would say it's a shame that that didn't didn't get over the line. I was certainly hoping that it that it would, but to go back to the title of this series, make or break, would it be a fair comment to say that defeat for you would have been harder to recover from than defeat was for him? It was a setback for him, of course, but he could point to the close scorecards. He's still James DeGale. He's still Olympic gold medalist. He still had that kind of backing behind him. Do you think if you'd lost, that people would have been more willing to write you off? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. I'd have been chip paper, you know, and I'd had to have rebuilt. Um, don't know whether I would have kept... Um, you know, whether, whether Adam Booth would have still wanted to work with me or not, you know, whether they would look for back to working with someone else or, you know, um, it, would have been, it would have definitely been tough. I mean, who knows? Who knows, you know? Um, I think probably Degal suffered a little bit more than probably people realise or that he, maybe even he realises that he was kind of in the wilderness for, for a little while. Um, literally after that fight, I signed with Frank Warren, which was, um, you know, a kick in the teeth for him that he couldn't take. And he left Warren, didn't renew with him. Um, he boxed on the road a bit. I think he boxed, um, he had two fights abroad. He won the European, he won the European title with, with Warren maybe, and then boxed on the, on the, on the road a bit and, um, never really settled in. He wanted to settle with, um, I think with Matram, but was, but also kind of wanted to, Played the field and, and did his deal with Al Heyman and box a lot in the States as well. Um, I don't think... I, the Paul Smith fight, I thought he looked brilliant, um, even though I would never admit it to him beforehand because obviously that you know, you're, not, you're not admitting defeat in that respect. But I thought he looked very good in the Paul Smith fight and I don't think he looked good again until he boxed on my undercard against um, Frotch, where I can't remember who he boxed now. He boxed um, an American guy. I think he got trained with Virgil Hunter. Um, and that yeah, was a fight for his world title fight. Oh, I can't remember his name. Was it something Gonzalez? It, yeah, it was a Gonzalez. I think he had a, a black guy with a Spanish name. Um, and he boxed really well. Really, really well. And then, I don't think he boxed particularly well against Darrell. I just think Darrell was way past his best. I mean, it was a great fight. He dropped him early. Um, Darrell has a bit of a final push uh, near the end and it's a real tight decision Degal gets gets the nod um, but he's played with injuries I think as well which probably definitely didn't help him um, whether it be down to the type of training he was doing or just whether his body wasn't cut out for it he'd always always tell you at the end of a fight oh, this is only 50% this is only 80% this is only 20% um, 
but maybe it might have been just mental as well. Like getting beat in such a high profile fight against your rival that felt personal does take it does take his toll mentally and um it might take him a good few years to have um got over that if he if he ever did, who knows. And just finally you seem to be quite good friends now with, with, with Carl Frotch, which these things can happen as, as, as time passes. You'll, you'll, you'll know the extent to which that relationship is, is, uh, is flourished too, shall we, <laughs> shall we say? It could be related to the fact that as a double act, um, you, can, you can make some, some tidy coin together talking about your, uh, talking about your, your two fights. Um, with the Gale, though, you're not going to see him as much because he hasn't taken to the kind of punditry role that, that, that you have. But I mean, do, do you ever see him when you see him? No, what, what, I never happens? see him. So he still lives in London. Um, I have friends that see him. I'm, I'm, he might have friends that have said they've seen me out and about or whatever, but um, we don't mix in the same circles, you know, um, you must have some mutual friends, though, George, from way back. No, I think, really. I think there are there, there's a few through the boxing, um, and but none, none, no one that I that I know really well. Just more that more people that I might bump into out and about. You know, you're driving along and you see someone from from the club, or you know, from, it's usually from Dale. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, I. I I can't see me ever being able to get on with him, but I, I would have easily said the same thing about Frotch, like not that long ago. Um, obviously, I've worked with Frotch now um, as guy, so the thrust it's been thrust upon me, and um, it is it is easy to, if you're both just going to give it up, then it is easy to just get on because there's nothing there no more. There's no fight there. But for some reason, I don't think that's ever going to be the case with the Gale. I can't, I can't, we're just far too different, far too different. Um, like, it might even pay me to say it publicly, but there's like, there's things that I can relate to with Carl, you know, like career-wise, etc. you know, um, things that he would have been through, um, that I went through. I don't know if Digal's been. I don't know if Digal's the same. And if he has, I don't know if I could ever give a fuck. Do you know what I mean? Um, so uh, <laughs> I think it's good to have one enemy just to keep the blood flowing when you need it. And he's going to be my enemy for life. And I hope he knows that. I hope he never forgets it. Because um, it's ten year anniversary next year. Maybe we have to dust the gloves off. Don't know what he's wearing. He's always skinny these days. It's the only problem. Might be too skinny for me. Needs to pack on a bit of timber and I'll put him away <laughs> 10 year anniversary. Okay. Well, that's a perfect place to end it. That is the perfect place to end it. I kind of like that, to be honest. I'm not, you know. Who's it... your rival? And who do you hate? Me? Yeah. Who do you hate? Who's your rival? There's a couple of people who have stitched me up down the years who uh, whose names I shall keep to myself, but they, they are in my... Are they people that you still see on a regular basis? Not so much anymore. They, they're from my football days, really. 
They're from my football days. Um, and I can't think of any particular reason why our paths would necessarily cross again and I would get the opportunity to pay back in kind what I feel is owed, uh, shall we say. Um, I would if, if, if I got, <laughs> if I got the it, chance. Man. Keep it in there. You want to keep it in the pit of your stomach and when the time comes, and it will come. You unleash hell and fury on them, Mofo. Well, I, th- I seem to have managed to escape that without actually naming anybody, which is perfect because... Um, yeah, I, I, yeah it, there's, there's just no need. It's a bit exhausting, to be honest, holding grudges, I find. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't really, to be honest. I don't, um, I was talking to my wife about this the other day. Um, I don't really buy into forgive and forget. I move on, but I definitely don't forgive and forget if I feel that it shouldn't be forgiven and forgotten. But it, it, it can, Matt Macklin put it really well the other week. We were talking to, a while ago now, he was talking about, we're talking about how it's easy to resent situations when you're a professional fighter and feel like everybody's against you. And he said, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And I think that's kind of right. And you're killing yourself by holding on to resentments. And I, I held on to so many resentments with so many people, places and things. And when I realized how fucking futile it was and how exhausting it was and how stupid and pointless it was, and that was only hurting myself, you know, I slowly, let, I, I learned to let go of them all. And, you know, for, forgiveness is something you do for yourself, isn't it? I'm forgiving them for me, just so I'm holding on to resent them. I don't care if they know, I'm just I'm forgiving them, so I've got to live with that grudge. I, I agree with forgiveness, but never forget, never forget. Um, you, you, uh, that's the one. That's the one gift that's given to you, um, and you have to do it time and time and time again in boxing. And people do you feel have wronged you, and you might be working with them in your very next fight. So you can forgive them, but you never, never forget. Never ever forget. That'd be my shit advice for um, anyone who's listening. Well, I like it. I like it. This has taken a kind of philosophical steer towards the end here. And, and boxing is a mad sport like that because you do, it is quite small. And, and as fighters, managers, promoters, you do end up having to work with people who probably fairly recently or maybe fairly recently have, have royally tried to, to stitch you up and you just have to let it slide and, and, and pretend that that it's all just part of the fun. Uh, you see some hilarious conversations through kind of gritted teeth between people at press conferences in, and weigh-ins. In boxing, apart from the achievements and the the, 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 the the glam and the glory and all the dreams that we've hoped to be, watching on the telly, living the dreams, it's an amazing journey. It's such an emotional roller coaster. It's, I mean, you, you could go to university for 50 years and never learn what you're learning in a 10-year career about life. I mean, you just, I think fighters that have been through the mill, especially ones who have kind of, I, like, I know George really took control of his own career in, in terms of the business and everything. You, le- you learn so much, you become, you know, at a relatively still a young man, George, he'll, he'll be wise, you know, because you've, you've made mistakes, you've trusted people, you've been hurt, you've been let down, and you place too big of expectations on other people and you realise you got hurt because you expected too much. And you, it, it's, and we could talk about philosophy for hours and mix it within boxing because it just it just covers every area of it. Okay, well, I, I really am going to call time on it there because uh, looking at 
looking at George's window, it's it's uh, at, in his kitchen. It was bright light when we started, and now it's getting dark. Uh, so we've kept you for long enough. Thanks a lot for doing this. It's um, yeah, it, it was on our list right from the beginning because I just remember that fight so well. I just remember the build up so well, and just being so pleased that it was that it was happening. Uh, I had no horse in the race. I didn't care who won. I was just delighted it was it was made, and I couldn't wait to see. Uh, what happened and and on the night it, it it delivered so hopefully we'll see you before too long because things are inching their way back towards back towards normality um but we will be back next week with with another one of these and thanks for listening everybody as always and we'll catch you again soon and old Lucy Brown yes that Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.